This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. Uh, Tonight, we actually want to talk about uh, what does it mean from the overflow of our love for God and our relationship with God, how does that overflow into the context of singleness and being unmarried and navigating uh, dating and that whole thing? Uh, So I would love um, if you make yourself comfortable for the next two hours uh, as I share some thoughts as a cursory overview and introduction to the subject. Uh, No, no, don't worry, we won't quite go that far. But I did want to start with a little bit of personal context uh, because I'm only new to the life of the church and so you, you see some old white dude turn up with a wife and two kids and you must think, this guy's always been married. Who's this guy to speak about singleness and navigating dating? Um, Well, I actually just wanted to share uh, the reality that I actually got married later in life. You you may not know this uh, about me. Uh, So in my young adult years, I uh, was single while I watched my mates around me pair up and get married. Felt the call of God to go into vocational ministry, so I moved out of home and I moved into Bible college, which was affectionately referred to as bridal college, because most people who went there single left married. Five years later, that had indeed happened to a number of my friends, but I left Bible college, anyone want to hazard a guess? Single. So then I, yeah, you, yeah, it's good, it's good to be single, Right. Uh, so then I moved into um, uh, my first full-time pastoral um, position, uh, which was really exciting as a youth and young adult pastor. And, and for about two years, the first two years I was there, everyone would tell me, hey, the last two, or I think it was three youth pastors who turned up here single, left here married. So obviously this was a great church to respond to the call of God because, hey, guys like me ended up finding a wife in the life of the church. Five years later, I left single. And after that time, I um, went through the vocational call of actually being recognized as a formal accredited Baptist pastor, uh, which is a pretty cool thing. And uh, as part of the training, the induction they do with you, they take you away for three days and uh, they input all this kind of good Baptist teaching and set you up for a win, a lifelong, uh, a lifetime of uh, fruitful ministry. And they send out the agenda in the week ahead of this. And I looked at it and I was like, great, first day, we're going to get to know the other people getting accredited, uh, people like me. We're going to hear a little bit from the denomination about what they're about and, and some really important things. Then we've got these two days set aside for content. They get, these guys are going to invest in us. Isn't this awesome? And I look at the agenda, I'm like, whoa, 25% of this input that I'm about to receive is about how to pastor as a married person. And so I reach out to the guy who's running this training, a good guy I knew, um, and I said, look, I'm actually really excited to sit under this teaching because I hope to one day be married, and I'm sure there's a bunch of stuff I can learn. But by that stage, I was a bit older, and I had friends who were a bit older, and I knew that for some people, you know what, their singleness was starting to sting a little bit. And so I said, look, look, I'm okay with this, but I just wonder how you guys think about your training, knowing that this could raise some real pastoral issues for people. And I'll never forget the response I got from a guy I really respect um, who's really clued in. But he just said, look, the the reality is, Travis, we just don't get many people like you through the accreditation system. He says, we get a single, an unmarried person through the accreditation program about once every three years, and they're usually female. Right. So here I am, 
an accredited Baptist pastor, seen my mates not just marry, but finish having their families by now. And I find myself uh, in my three-bedroom apartment to myself. Uh, It's probably a little bit excessive. And I wrote this in 2014 on my Facebook page. Currently enjoying a super comfy, zen-like, snuggly furniture addition to the bachelor pad. And it was that chair. I'd bought that chair from Plush. (laughs) On the downside, apparently purchase price did not include wife and daughter or even a bowl of grapes. Misleading advertising. Uh, So there I was, uh, I'm into my 30s now as a Christian, which I recognise is not that old in the overall scheme of things, but in the Christian world that I was and where I inhabited and where I certainly where I expected to be by that time in my life, um, it was starting to sting. Uh, And throughout my 20s, there were times where I was super content as a single Christian. And there were times where I was like, you know what, I'm actually ready for something more than this. Over my 20s, and we'll get there in the, in the back half of the message, um, I was in some dating relationships that were godly and healthy but did not lead to marriage, and I was in some uh, unhealthy and ungodly relationships which I've learnt a lot of lessons from. But I wanted to introduce it this way because I don't want you to hear me speaking as if I married my high school sweetheart at 21 and I've been the Christian married man now going to tell you about what you should do as singles. If you hear anything tonight that sounds even remotely like a cliche, I hope you understand and can hear that it isn't. This has come from a place of deeply wrestling with and researching and investigating and coming up to my own sense of what God would speak into my life and to the life of my friends, many of who are now deep into their 40s and have never been married. And I believe that God is good news to all, and I think he has a lot to say. Well, if you are over 25 and you are in a church, chances are you sometimes feel like this. Couples. There's couples everywhere. So first, I'd love just to go, what is the actual reality with some hard data? So this is for the data nerds. So this is um, from the last census. This is how many adults in Australia are in a de facto relationship or currently married. Only 56%, or maybe, wow, 56%. Does that number larger than you think it would be or smaller than you think it would be? Smaller. Well, that's, that was my, certainly, absolutely, I thought, wow, that is crazy. So uh, nearly one in three adult Australians have never been married. There's another 15% who um, are single again. Um, in terms of breaking that down by generations, baby boomers, mate, they loved it. They loved the marriage. Only 7% of baby boomers were never married, which is crazy. But look at the jump to Gen X. 22% of Generation X, this is in the last survey, have never been married. And obviously there's another, what's that, nearly over 20% who are single again after having been married. Uh, by the time you get to millennials, <coughs> that's me, um, 32% of uh, us in the last survey were, uh, have been never been married. And presumably um, we're a young enough generation that not as many uh, are single again on the other side of marriage. And don't worry about that Gen Z stat because half of you are still at school. So we're not expecting you to be married. But what you can see, isn't it? You can see that there are, there's an increasing never been married percentage of our population. This is the crude marriage rate, so that is how many marriages per thousand people of population uh, happen each year in Australia, and since the 1970s, that has been on a pretty serious 
downward trajectory. That crazy dip right at the end there was COVID, by the way. Everyone delayed their, uh, their marriages till the year after. It kind of jumps back up but continues the trend down. So only about 3.4 uh, per thousand get married every year. Uh, on top of that, there's been this, and I think Johnny's going to speak about this a bit more next week, there's been a rise of the single-person household in Australia for some time now. I don't know if that is a stat that surprises you, but 25.6%, one in four Australians, live alone. Hmm. And that does not include, oh, sorry, and that's how that tracks um, as a graph over history. So pretty serious increase over the last couple of decades. Uh, and this single-person household does not include the rise of single-parent families, who obviously have more than one person living at home, but obviously represent an unmarried or a single, again, portion of our population. So what does all this mean? Well, as I read and as I interpret the stats, it means friends. There's a lot of fish in the sea. No, no, I'm sorry, I couldn't, I couldn't. Can you forgive me for that joke? The dad joke, I'm a dad, it's about time I dropped a dad joke in there. No, what does it mean? Uh, what it means is that there is a significant portion, half, let's be honest, half of Australians don't live in a marriage or a marriage-like relationship. And that, anecdotally, as I'm sure you look around and as you've lived, is reflected in the church. Uh, we're not made up of a bunch of married people and the odd single person. But those who are yet to be married, um, those who uh, once were married, um, it's, it's, it's just increasing. Uh, and theologian Stanley Grenzi has this great phrase. He talks about, well, in there there's a portion of people who are what he calls the unchosen single. So there's those people who, you know what, I want to get married. I want to be married. It was me when I put that post up. I was an unchosen single. It was not the season of life I would have chosen for myself yet. It was the season of life that I found myself in. So the question is, how do we navigate singleness together as the church? And so if you will allow me uh, for the next 20 minutes, according to that countdown, uh, I'm going to do my best um, to share what I think the Bible says about it uh, and share some wisdom about how we navigate singleness towards marriage if that is something that you desire. What does the Bible speak about it? I'm going to do a throwback plug. Um, if you would like to hear a 50-minute talk from me uh, on the theology of singleness, that was one of the last sermons I ever wrote and preached before I started dating my now wife, Kay. Uh, hit me up. Uh, I will send you the MP3. And I track from Genesis through the Psalms into the New Testament, uh, and it's beautiful. But this is kind of the punchline, so I've saved you 50 minutes. Theologian Barry Danielek. The biblical storyline describes the unfolding of God's redemptive hope to all humanity through Jesus. In Christ, a new community is being built, a community of male and female, of Jew and Gentile, of rich and poor, of married and single. The New Testament's description of singleness as a calling and a charisma, that is a gift, affirms a message of hope and inclusion for those who are single. 
The message in no way denigrates marriage, but rather affirms that life together in the body of Christ needs and benefits from both single and married people. Theologian Stanley Grenz, uh, he's got a great book around all issues of, of marriage and singleness and human sexuality. Um, he talks about this, the great truth and that great idea that marriage is this beautiful image, as we know, of Jesus' relationship, covenant relationship with the church. And he would say that the marriage speaks of Christ and the church in a way that singleness cannot. Uh, but by the same token, singleness speaks of finding perfect fulfillment in Christ in a way that marriage cannot. And his conclusion is the same as Barry's, that actually the church isn't just better by having both. We actually need both to present to the world a more complete picture and understanding of who God is and of how God works in the world. Isn't that a beautiful idea? We need one another. And together we have a fuller, a more complete picture as the church. So navigating singleness as the church, let's talk about for a moment uh, singleness, blessing and the new covenant community. How's that for a, for a subheading for the next three minutes, maybe four? We'll see how we go. Look, I've journeyed with a, a lot of people over the years um, who are, to use Grenz's quote, unchosen in their singleness. People deep into their 30s, deep into their 40s, who have never been married, even though they would like to be. And I remember having chats with um, yeah, one girl in, in particular um, who was sharing just her heartache of what it actually meant to belong to the community of faith as a single woman deep into her life. And there were some fair reflections that perhaps in the Western church, particularly in the last century, we have elevated the nuclear family beyond what the Bible does. Where all of our programs are focused towards this progression. Youth, young adult, young married, young family, and then all these demographic programs, discipleship programs, that track the progress of the children of these families. Her reflection was that she'd heard so many sermons where the illustrations were about romance. And they came from marriage. They came from parenthood. That publicly we prayed for and we celebrated mums. Publicly we celebrated and we prayed for dads. Publicly we celebrated and we prayed for couples as they got engaged in the life of the church and ultimately when they got married as well. And it's like it's not like any of these things in her mind were bad things for us to do as a church. And she was at times found it really happy and natural to be to celebrate with those who celebrate as the scripture says. But it had left her in the midst of it feeling or well, the, the overall I message I guess she got was mm, you don't quite fit the mold. Maybe you're a little bit of a second-class citizen. A little bit of the Shannon Knoll, what about me? <laughs> it isn't fair. And I get that. And I get that. I think the pendulum swings throughout history, and you might be interested to know that, that at times in the church's history, we've elevated the opposite. 
So the Nazarites, um, that sect, uh, has, has vows that include life, lifelong commitment to singleness and celibacy. The, the Jesuits uh, are true of this as well. The, the monastic movement, monks and nuns, where we elevated those who committed themselves to a life of single-hearted devotion to God. And we lifted them up as almost the, the superior, the super, the better Christian. I think over the last century, that pendulum, as my friend rightly observed, has possibly swung. And we've talked a lot about marriage and almost idolized marriage and con- conformed our church's programs around catering for married people. But the reality is half of Australians in their adult life are not. And the picture that the New Testament paints of our community is a place where everyone belongs. And there's this radical inclusion and this connection. Uh, There's not about isolation or or loneliness, but all of us, male, female, slave, free, Greek, Jew, married, unmarried, all in this beautiful, wonderful community together. Uh, It's exciting uh, and it's wonderful at its best. And I think it's what we're called to live out. In fact, the New Testament sees Jesus as being so amazingly revolutionary and most important in our life that everything else just kind of falls to the periphery, that it's about him and it's always all about him. Uh, and so uh, Paul, when he writes to the church in 1 Corinth, and if, and if you want to talk about this topic, you've got to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, I encourage you to go and read it in its entirety and meditate on what it says. Uh, But he talks about what it means to be married and unmarried and what his advice is in all of this. And the the bottom line really is that he's like, look, if you don't need to be married, don't. Get on with the business of the gospel. Um, Lewis talked this morning uh, about the fact that the harvest is now and there's an urgency around that. Uh, Well, Paul was very much in that mindset, himself an unmarried man, given uh, to the work of of, of the Lord, having a sense of urgency, and particularly for him, this idea of this urgency that that Jesus could return at any point. Uh, And so he he writes uh, to the church and he says, now for matters you wrote about, talking about marriage, and he goes on to, to spend an entire chapter devoted to this. And one of the things, I guess one of the core things for him is verse 17, that each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. Each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them. This is the overflow. That as they know and as they love God, as they follow him, as they give themselves to mission and to ministry, there's a blessing there and a connection there. There's a purpose and a meaning that's not tied to specific personal circumstances whether they're in a romantic relationship or not Jesus when he's teaching on marriage and divorce in Matthew chapter 19 he's teaching some hard stuff and his disciples say you're teaching some hard stuff what's the point of even getting married if this is the kind of standard that you're calling everybody to they're trying to almost get him to kind of wind back what he's actually teaching and Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 he says yeah you're right This is a hard teaching. Let those who hear it receive it. And then he talks about something. He says, for there's kinds of people in the world. There are those who were born as eunuchs. And so he's referring to people that anatomically or maybe the persuasions they have or the hormone levels in their body, that they're unable to get married. 
He talks about those who are made eunuchs. That's talking about that uh, ancient practice of castration. Jesus is not condoning that here for the record. He's just saying that some people uh, are kind of made or forced into this life of singleness and celibacy by the hand of others. But then he introduces a third topic. Uh, Those who choose to be as eunuchs, that is, who choose a life of singleness and celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. This is Matthew chapter 19. And so he's introducing this idea that there are some that will actually choose this path as a way of living out or their faith in Christ overflowing into their behaviours and their directions. And so as much as Grenz will say, yeah, there's a bunch of unchosen singles are in the world and in the church, there are also those who deliberately choose this pattern and this way of being. And it is a good thing. Uh, and certainly Jesus validates it. Mm, there's too much in this message already, isn't there? Sorry. Can I, can I just give one? I'll give one illustration because you might be like, this doesn't make any sense to me, Travis. Well, I had a friend. She was a girl and we did not date. So there's no juicy gossip here. Um, but she was single and um, you could tell that she was one of these people that would have loved to have gotten married, uh, particularly loved to have kids. Uh, I'm not saying that she, she can't into the future. But she also sensed the call of God in her life to go into cross-cultural missionary work to this small town um, in Africa. I won't say where. And I remember, and we certainly had these conversations as a church, that her decision to follow Jesus to this small town in one of the countries uh, in Africa would most likely mean that she would not get married because she wouldn't meet a single man uh, her age in that culture and certainly in that small little village and it was an unreached part of the world so she was unlikely to meet a a godly Christian single man for whom she could start to date and to marry and so we joyfully commissioned her to follow the call of God in her life And I don't think any of us sat there and thought to ourselves, "Ah, she's missing out. She's made the wrong decision. She's somehow impoverished or less than for choosing that path. You should see the joy and the hope and the meaning and the fulfillment in that lady's eyes when she comes back and she tells the stories of the ways she has seen Jesus at work through her in that community and in that village. Following Jesus is what is the path of blessing. And belonging to the Christian community is what often brings us the greater sense of belonging and in it togetherness. All right. Let's imagine for a moment that you don't have a job. Imagine for a moment that you don't have a job. You are unemployed. You would really quite like a job. In fact, you are actively looking for a job. You're ready for a job. Like, you know that a job is hard work. Of course it is, and it brings with it its unique challenges. You know that a job is time-consuming and will inevitably shape the change, uh, change the shape of your life. But you also know that a job brings its own rewards, and its own sense of meaning and fulfillment from being employed. So a job is something that you desire. All your friends 
have jobs. And whenever you get together, all they talk about is their jobs. Some people complain about their jobs. Some people rejoice in their jobs. But whether they like their jobs or don't like their jobs, they all talk about their future in light of the fact that they have a job. They like you, and they want you to have a job too. So they feel it is their role to give you well-meaning advice on how to get a job, as if you already haven't been looking for a job. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. This is what it can be like uh, to experience church community as a single. Uh, All I want to do is invite us into the biblical picture of what it means to be church. One of the things that I think single people need the most is friendship. What it is is a sense of belonging. It's a sense of community. It's a sense of not everything has to be about relational status, but we're following Jesus together and that's the most important thing. And when we get together and we celebrate what Jesus is doing in each other's lives, when we get together and we get to pray for and we get to share how we're counting the cost to follow Jesus, we feel like we are part of a body, like that we feel that we are part of a family, that we're not alone, that we're not second rate, but we're in it together these living stones that Jesus is building together into this temple that he dwells by his spirit. Does that sound good? That sounds good to me. That was a long time. I don't know why that point took so long, but hopefully you got the point. (laughs) Navigating singleness together as the church, very quickly on this one, on idolatry, false identity, and fear of missing out. No. All right, let's keep moving. No, I just wanted to draw your attention to this. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in him you have been brought to fullness, to completion. You lack no good thing. You don't need to look across the fence at those who experience something that you don't, who are in a different uh, relational status than you, and somehow think that they've got it better or more fuller or they got the better deal. Actually, when it comes to being in Christ, we have been brought to fullness. Our identity as the ch- is as the children of God. We have the fullness of the Spirit and we have the fullness of the blessings that come from God through Christ, regardless of our relationship status. Dallas Willard, he writes this in The Divine Conspiracy. We must accept the circumstances we constantly find ourselves in as the place of God's kingdom and blessing. Listen. God has yet to bless anyone except where they actually are. And if we faithlessly discard situation after situation, moment after moment, as not being right, we will simply have no place to receive his kingdom into our life. For those situations and those moments are our life. If you find yourself in a season of being unchosen singleness where you are frustrated and you look to the future and you think, well, that's when God is going to bless me. That's when I'm going to experience peace and joy and fulfillment. Oh, that's when I'm going to break free of these addictions or whatever it is in our life. Listen to that again. God is yet to bless anybody except where they are right now. Chris, I think it needs, we need a little break. Do you mind uh, 90 seconds of stuff, single Christians here, and let's fly through dating and relationships. There's someone out there for you. Jesus is your boyfriend now. Meet and greets coming up. 
you know what to do. The key is to act like you don't care. It happens when you don't expect it. Who are you bringing to the wedding? If I was a girl, I'd date you. Who can we set you up with? Sorry, couples only. Have you tried internet dating? She looks single. You know who else wasn't married? Paul. All single ladies, all single ladies, come on. Happens when you're not looking. Work on your smile. He's single! You know who else wasn't married? Jesus. It's okay to be a fifth wheel. Maybe if you give God one of your ribs, he'll give you a wife. You should change your Facebook profile picture. You know who else wasn't married? Matthew. No, he was married. You should meet my cousin. Just pray about it. Pray harder. This series is on marriage. You don't need to pay attention. You're not that old yet. You can't settle. You know, you might want to think about settling. There's plenty of fish in the sea. We're going to celebrate not having Valentine's Day. If she says, you're like my best friend, that's bad. You should try overflow. Maybe she can see you tithe. You know, when you have a wife, you can't play as much Xbox. You should get a dog. Have you asked Jesus for a wife? Are you on Christian Mingle? Have you? Have you tried this? This looks good. I have a great book for you to read. It's called the Bible. Jesus is your girlfriend now. Dude, you have to get someone hot because you're going to be married to them forever. You are going to make such a cool aunt. It's not about you. You know, there's no marriage in heaven. It's all about you. I don't know. Is he a Christian? It's about Jesus. I know people who got married when they were like 70. Okay, you're fine. Marriage is like a sandwich. It takes a long time. You're not going to meet your husband at a bar. Do you want to be Jim and Pam or do you want to be Ross and Rachel? For it is better to be unmarried. See? Nice. Can I have a, a read of the room from a scale of 1 to 10? How much longer do you have in you? I've got to go for it. That's a 10. Pardon? Oh, yeah, sure. I'm talking in minutes. Oh, that, yeah, that's even genius. Pardon? Two hours. All right. As I said, great sermon. I can send you an MP3 P3 if you want even more. Cool. Uh, what I'd love to do is I'd love to shift. Uh, I'd love to shift focus, um, which really should be... <laughs> He's put two hours on the countdown timer. Chris, you are the funniest man in the room. You are the funniest man in the room, and that is dangerous. That is dangerous. Um, I would love to... In as short a time as I possibly can, because Shiv brought home baked cookies, um, talk about navigating singleness towards marriage. So, so that front end was just to say, do you know what? God has got a good and perfect plan for his world that involves people of what, whatever their relational status. But if you are sitting there and you're a single or you're a single again and you're like, you know what? One day I would like to move towards marriage. Here is the, the I'm not even going to put a time frame on it. We're just going to go fast. What is the purpose of dating? I have to start, though, by telling you a story. Uh, back in uh, 1864, uh, I finished school and I started dating um, a lovely young girl uh, that I'd met through some Christian friends um, at my church, and she was interested in me. Uh, so I've been dining out on that as an ego boost for the last century. Um, and so we dated for about a year and ended up calling it quits and it worked out pretty quick. This wasn't, well, not that quick. Um, it wasn't going to go towards marriage. But I remember breaking up and in the weeks uh, and months afterwards, actually sitting there, because I'd been a Christian for about five years now uh, and been a pretty serious uh, Christian for a couple of years. I remember sitting there and thinking to myself, what was that? What was that? We were two Christians who had dated but there was no way I would have described what we just did as a Christian dating relationship. Does that make sense? There's a difference. So what is 
biblically, theologically, as part of the overflow of our love for God, what is or what should Christian dating even look like? Well, if you read your, your Bibles, there's not much in here that speaks about dating. Uh, 2,000 years ago, you went and you asked someone's mum and dad if you could marry them and you got him betrothed and that was, was kind of it. Uh, so what is considered dating today where you're, you're experimenting, where you're learning somebody, where you're, you're, you're getting some experience in, in what it means to relate to members of the opposite sex and all that kind of stuff, uh, it, just, it, just wasn't, it just wasn't there. And so I spent a bunch of time reading the scriptures, uh, listening to what other godly and wise Christians had to say, uh, and I came up with something very simple. What is the purpose of dating? It's to answer the question, will this move forward to marriage or not? At its heart, that's as simple as it can be. It's not because it's fun, it's not because you're curious, it's not because you want to experience something, it's not because you want to explore certain physical things. It's about fundamentally discerning, will I ask this person to marry me or not? So my definition of a successful Christian dating relationship is that it does three things. Number one, it honours God. Number two, that both people are encouraged and built up towards Christ through it. And number three, it answers that question Will this move forward to marriage? Love to say a whole bunch more on all of those things, um, but I did say this would be the succinct version. So, in my mind, if you date somebody, and in that dating of that person, you're honouring God in your life, and at the end of that relationship, you are closer to God than you were at the beginning, and they are closer to God than at the beginning, and you decide this isn't going to go forward to marriage and break up. In my mind. That is a successful, godly, Christian dating relationship. By the same token, if you date somebody and you honour God and you build each other up and you are more pursuing the things of God in your life at the end than at the beginning, and they are too, and you'd answer that question, you decide, you know what, we are going to get married and you get engaged, successful dating Christian relationship in my mind. If you have any question about that, you're welcome to ask me over cookies. Who do we date? This is a great question. And the Bible doesn't have a checklist. You'll be disappointed to know for those who like lists and like checking off people against lists. Um, but it does have an enormous amount to say about character and the importance of character. So if you want to look for some red flags, uh, for people who like red flags, just read through the book of Proverbs. It's got a great bunch of practical wisdom and practical advice uh, on human behaviors and traits, some of which are good and some of which are bad. I think if you really want to start going forward, start looking at what the New Testament puts down as requirements for leadership within the church. Right, if we're going to trust somebody to do ministry in the life of the church, well, that's probably the kind of person you want to be thinking about pursuing romantically. And so you can find those lists in multiple places um, in the New Testament. I think you should also look at the passage of scriptures that, uh, that deal with marriage itself, where the scriptures talk about, well, what does a loving, godly husband look like? What does a loving, godly wife look like? Have a read of those. Because if a person does not look like that, well, maybe they're not the kind of person to be pursuing, even though they're not married. Does that make sense? 
There is one thing I think that the Bible is very clear on. Paul is very clear on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 um, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And that is choose someone who loves Jesus. Choose someone who knows what it means to put their faith and trust in the living God and to have him as the very foundation and utmost importance um, in their life. Paul, in that 1 Corinthians 7 passage, he talks about, hey, listen, if you want to get married, get married. If you, if you don't, hey, that's all right. But he has these really specific instructions for those who once were married and something happens to a partner. Uh, and he says, whatever you do, make sure if you're going to remarry, marry someone who belongs to the Lord. In 2 Corinthians, that's his next letter, he actually goes a lot harder on this and he says, what fellowship does light have with dark? And he talks about being yoked together. Uh, there's something that happens in marriage where you tie yourself to another human being. And the idea is that, goodness gracious, in the same... Oh, this is too long. Too much explanation. You can read it. 2 Corinthians um, chapter 6. But it is just that idea. Honour God. Build each other up in Christ. How can you marry somebody who, who can't do that? I remember in, in my life I married someone who absolutely loves Jesus, which is uh, amazing. Uh, and on our journey to, to have our family, we had um, two miscarriages uh, over that time. Uh, and I remember the first one. And I remember sitting there and praying with Kay. Praying to a God that we know loves us and cares for us, sees us and hears us. A God that we trust to guide our lives even the most important hard stuff, like losing a child. I cannot even think about going through that sign of experience, married to somebody who doesn't even believe that there's a God. Kay and I, we think about what it means to raise our children to, to love and to know God, and to prioritise church and kingdom values in their life to disciple them up in, in their faith so that they would put their faith and trust in Jesus and follow him all the days of their life. Dude, I can't even imagine how I would navigate parenting as a Christian with somebody who did not agree in going to church, who did not share the same kingdom values as me. And I know that's a hard word because I've been in churches for a lot of years and I know there's a lot of people married to people who don't know and love um, God. And part of my conviction about the wisdom of what I'm saying here and what Paul is saying is that I've heard the heartache and I've heard the anxiety from those people. And one of the hardest things in their life, one of the things they desire above all is that their partner would come to believe and that they could share what is most essential to who they are with the person who is closest to them. And as a young adult and a youth pastor over the years, I've seen, I have to say, so many people drift away from leadership and drift away from belonging and attending a church and ultimately drift away from an active faith and belief in Jesus because they yoked themselves together with somebody who did not. Is this a hard teaching? Yes. But let those with ears to hear, hear. I would love, love, love to save your world of heartache with that piece of wisdom. Final one and we'll sing on boundaries.
2 Timothy 2, flee from the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. If you would love some physical boundaries for what to do, what is God honoring as a, uh, as a Christian, um, this is from a theologian, it's not from me. Three lines. The line of respect should never be crossed. A couple ought not to engage in any activity that would result in either one losing respect for the other should the relationship come to an end. Second, the line of future regret should never be crossed. A couple ought to avoid any activity that one or the other could possibly find to be a source of guilt in the future. Such regret may not only arise in situations where the dating relationship ends. And number three, line number three, the line of uncontrollable passion should never be crossed. Physical sexual activity is intended to lead to intercourse, if not willfully and deliberately arrested. I oh, love theologians talking about this kind of stuff. For this reason, activities that raise the degree of passion can easily result in unintended involvement in the sect acts itself. So couples, therefore, must be careful to draw the line of activity well below the point at which the passion of the moment could blur their vision for their own ultimate good. Uh, I had a friend who described it the best way I think I ever could, and he said, my one piece of advice for young people when it comes uh, to, to physical boundaries in their dating relationship is always be interruptible. Always be interruptible. Your mum should be able to walk into the room and say, hey, are you guys hanging around for dinner tonight? Your youth pastor should be able to go, hey, what's going on in here? <laughs> Always be uh, interruptible. I've talked for way too long. Thank you for indulging me. Seven years after I posted that, nine years, what is it? A lot of years, seven years. I wrote this on my Facebook feed. Seven years later, I've picked up a wife, a daughter, a son, currently have grapes in the fridge, and am convinced this was indeed my best furniture purchase ever. Past Travis, good call, buddy. <laughs> so the message is, buy a snuggle chair from Plush, you'll never regret it. <laughs> no, actually, what I wanted to say about this is I would like to think that if in 2021, when I posted that, because this post that I've come, jumped up in my Facebook memories feed, if all I had in my house was still that same snuggle chair and no son, no daughter, no wife, that I would be content and feel blessed and feel part of something that is of such significance to me, this, the church and what God is at work doing in my life. We can go into it another day, but I, I made some pretty serious mistakes along the way in my dating relationships. And I have some of the scars and I have some of the guilt and the shame and the regret. And I've seen some of the hurt and the pain that I have caused others. And by extension, others who knew of it. But at the end, with that wife on the couch, not that one, my actual wife, <laughs> should clarify. I got it right. Got it right. Kay and I had a Godly, boundaries-appropriate, courting, dating relationship that moved to engagement and moved to marriage. We honoured God. We built each other up. And I picked a woman who is going to kick my ass if I don't follow Jesus. <laughs> and who's going to spur me on and cheer me on to be the best kind of guy that God has created me to be. 
and I pick the kind of woman that I'm going to pray for and whose ass I'm going to kick if she doesn't keep following Jesus. A woman who I admire and respect, not for who she is, but for also who God has created her to be, for the gifts, the anointing, the calling that he has placed on her life. And it's a joy to follow Jesus together. So I pray this lengthy monologue has encouraged you in some way. I pray that in all of that there are bits of wisdom to glean, maybe some passages of scripture that you want to go back and sit with and read and meditate on. I could send you a whole bunch more. But in it all, single, unmarried, dating, engaged, wherever you find yourself, I just pray and trust that you know that God is good and that as we follow him together, mm, good things will happen. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.